turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We've been teaching Romans, but our study in Paul is not all about Romans. It's all about all of Paul's epistles. And from time to time, it's important that we mix things up a bit. 1 Corinthians one thirty, asking the question, do the things we're discovering in Romans about the unconditional grace of God, about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, about a Christocentric gospel, do they find verification and confirmation elsewhere in Paul's epistles? And I think today you'll see there's been a theme that I have been unable to escape from, and it's the theme of boasting in the Lord. I found out the reason for that. I was studying up until 9.05 this morning, then realized, hey, I have to go to church, so... If I look a little disheveled, it's because of, but I realized that huge and significant sections of Paul's writings involve pretty much an exegesis of Jeremiah chapter nine, verse 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the wealthy man boast in his wealth. Let not the mighty man or the strong man boast in his strength, but let anyone who is boasting, which is. Literally, the boaster. Let the boaster boast in the Lord. And I was amazed this morning to find out just how much of Paul's epistles relates to that and therefore is kind of an unfolding of that in his gospel because the gospel certainly, when it's understood properly, makes us take pride in Christ Jesus, not in anything else above him. And so we're going into the inescapable theme of boasting in the Lord again, but I want to look at not only 1 Corinthians 1, 30, but I also would like to look at Philippians chapter 3. And we'll be alluding to, I think, if this stays cohesive in my mind, to Colossians 1, 26 to 7, and several other passages. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. Now, 1 Corinthians, as well as 2 Corinthians, were written probably in 50 A.D., as recent study has pretty much pinpointed and made absolute a lot of the dates of the writings of Paul's epistles. Romans was written probably in the spring of 52 A.D. And between 1 and 2 Corinthians and Romans, Philippians was written. But before Philippians... There's a lost letter to the Philippians that we have a section of. And Philippians, which we would call a former letter or a lost letter to the Philippians. The reason we know this is because Paul put a major section of that letter. He re-entered it into the epistle that we know as the epistle to the Philippians in Macedonia, northern Greece. And so he, he leads into it with Philippians 3.1 by saying it's not, he first of all says rejoice in the Lord, which is kind of a synonym for boast in the Lord. Take pride in him, rejoice in the Lord. And then he said, for me to repeat or to be repetitious is no bother. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Moreover, for you, if I repeat, it's safe. Asphales, it makes you stable. It increases your stability. It confirms to you the truths that you know. It helps protect you from attacks that are inevitably to come. And then he goes into a strong warning 
about teachers, just like he does in Galatia, one specific one in Romans. Teachers, whom he calls, first of all, the dogs. Secondly, evil workers. Thirdly, the concision, not the circumcision. They require circumcision and then following the Torah of Moses for salvation. But they are not a circumcision. They are rather a katatome, which is a mutilation of the flesh. Watch out for them. Beware of the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. And these are Christian missionaries that he's asking them to watch out for. Beware of the evil workers. Watch out for mutilation incorporated who claim about circumcision, but what they really are is mutilators of the flesh. What they really are is mutilators of the good news of God about his son. And then he says, and we're going to hit this at the end. It'll be sort of an inclusio, I think. He says, but we are the circumcision. We are the true or the real circumcision, paratome. And then he says something that I think we'll find interesting. I'm not going to say it yet. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 1.30. First, the verse, my translation. But from him, that's God, speaking of God, from him, you are in Christ Jesus. That's God's doing. It's God's doing, not yours. It's not even your doing through faith alone that you're in Christ Jesus. It's God's doing that you are in Christ Jesus. We could put a period at the end of that sentence, but Paul doesn't have too many short sentences. He's the king of the run-on sentence. But he says, but from him, speaking of God, as you can see from the above context, you are in Christ Jesus. That is incorporated with Christ. We're going to learn as we have started to learn in our foray into Romans chapter 6, how can we who died to sin, continue any longer therein. Our history is not the history of the Adamic race in which there was sin, and then the law came in, and then there was an increase of sin. Our history is with an incorporation with Jesus Christ, who died to sin and rose to be alive to God. So we consider ourselves being in Christ Jesus to have died to sin. So how can we continue to live in it any longer? The gospel of faith alone in Christ alone for justification leaves you in the air as a sinner. You're still sinful. You're still going to be very sinful. You're still going to be repeating sins. Maybe if you sin and rebound enough, you'll start to get righteous. That's no help. That's not a gospel. The sword will cut through the darkness. It will impart life. It will give hope to the hopeless. And it is right now doing that. From him, that's God, you are in Christ Jesus, God's son, who for us, for us, became, and the way it's written in the Greek, it should read this way, he became not only wisdom, he became not only wisdom. Yahweh in the Old Testament was called I am that I am, which in certain ways can be translated, I will be whatever you need me to be. Do you need wisdom? I am that. Do you need righteousness? I am that. Do you need grace? I am that. Do you need salvation? I am that. Christ is those things. Who for us, 
because we lacked wisdom, became wisdom. Who for us, that wisdom is from God. But also, not only did he become for us wisdom, but also, the word is te-kai. It's two particles back to back. Te and the conjunction kai. T-E-K-A-I. But also, righteousness. Capitalize it. He became for us righteousness. Now, just... There's a little bit of connection here to Romans 1.17. Paul says in 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then in 1.17, he says, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Christ became our righteousness. In the gospel, Christ as our righteousness is being apocalyptically revealed. It is a revelation. Paul's gospel is an apocalypse. It's an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ. It did not come from men. He was not taught it. He didn't get it from the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. He did not get it from the church leaders in Jerusalem. He didn't get it from the church leaders in Antioch. In fact, there were things that separated him from the church in Jerusalem and things that later even separated him traumatically from the church in Antioch. And he had to declare his own independence about this apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ which is exactly what we're doing today, declaring this gospel. But from him, God, it means it's God's doing, not yours. God's action, not mine. You are in Christ Jesus. You've been incorporated into Christ Jesus. And when you were incorporated into Christ Jesus, you were incorporated into an altogether different history. Yours is not the history of the Adamic race where sin came in through Adam The law came in through a side door in Romans 5.20. Paul sidelines the law. The false teacher sidelines the Christ. The law came in through a side door so that sin would increase in the human race. And where sin in the human race increased, God's grace abounded. So what does that mean? In Romans 6, Paul's attackers say, well, that means then why not go out and continue in sin? Because in history, when sin was continued in, God's grace abounded more than the sin. But that's Adam's history. Paul goes on to say, may it never be. How can we that died to sin by what? By being in Christ Jesus when he died to sin and dies no more and is alive to God. How can we replicate the history of Adam where sin abounded and then grace abounded much more when we're not in Adam anymore. In God, it is God's doing that we are in Christ who was made for us wisdom, which means, among other things, he was made the wisdom for salvation, as we'll see. I'm going to exegete this a little further in a moment. Wisdom from God, but also righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So let's look at it again. First phrase, but from him, that's God. That means as God's gracious act from God as God's gracious act. We're going to learn that the cross, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ was not to assuage the wrath of God, but to save us from the wages of sin, which is death and to bring us to God who has no wrath toward humanity. And has no wrath toward man in Christ Jesus because of Christ Jesus. So we'll see this. That's coming up in Romans 3, 21 to 26. I had that already, already to present to you as a gourmet meal of the word of God, the bread of life, the meat of the word, the fruit of the spirit, 
the milk of the word, all the stuff ready for you, the new wine, all of it. And then, no, my wayward son, let's go over to 1 Corinthians. Well, sure. Verse 30. But from him, that's as God's gracious act, you are in Christ Jesus. I'd like to say period over and out to that because by God's doing, I am in Christ Jesus. That's my testimony. Short one, isn't it? You say yes uncharacteristically. You are in Christ Jesus from him. That is by God's faithfulness. You see, we got to go back here a little bit in 1 Corinthians 1.9. This is kind of like a, a take on 1 Corinthians at large in one way. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, it says, God is faithful who has called you into koinonia with his son. God is faithful who has called you into participation. Koinonia means participation. Fellowship is good, but the idea is God has called you. And the word called doesn't mean you were running away and God said, hey, get back here. Called means he called you into existence as a new creation, made you something that you were not before at all. He calls into existence things that are not. You were not the new creation until God called you into existence as the new creation. And if any man is in Christ Jesus, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any person, man or woman, is in Christ Jesus, there's the new creation. God has called us. And so in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful. Now, what are we talking about in Romans? The gospel is that in which the righteousness of God is being revealed. What is the righteousness of God? What Christ became. It's God's saving, reconciling act in Christ by God's faithfulness. The righteousness of God is being apocalyptically revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. That means from God's faithfulness demonstrated in Christ Jesus in his faithful death on the cross to ace piston to Christ's faithfulness which is ongoing in the corporate Christ, the church. Therefore, Paul says, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me, the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God, which he says in searing rebuke to the Christian missionaries with another gospel that Paul says, I won't even credit with the word gospel because gospel means good news. And that ain't no good news. Good news to me, God's doing that I'm in Christ Jesus. That's good news. In fact, that's good enough for me in one way. But I have an insatiable desire to know him, to know more, to know him, and the power of his resurrection, and to be more and more conformable to his death in order that I might experience the extraordinary out-resurrection from the dead, which is a life unto God lived in this life, the life of the coming age lived purposefully, meaningfully, really with definition in this life. If you want that, there's one thing you've got to do, and that's let go of what's behind you. Let's go, let go of the past. You can't afford to dwell on the past, past laurels, past failures, Past successes, past sins, past flaws. You're out of the history of Adam altogether now. You died and your life is hid with Christ in God. This is God's doing that we are in him. 
So from him, as God's unconditionally gracious act, more proof for that Thursday message and Wednesday's message, all of these hang together. As God's gracious act, you are in Christ Jesus. The same way as saying in one nine, by God's faithfulness who called you into participation with his son. God the Father called you into existence as the new creation. God the Holy Spirit incorporated you, it's called baptism, baptized you into union with Christ so that you share his history. His history of incarnation, faithful obedience to the extent of death, his faithful death, his faithful resurrection, his ascension, and his enthronement. That's what your history is now. So how can we continue in sin as the God, as the license to sin slanderers say, since our history is not the history of the human race in Adam, but the history of the human race in Christ who died to sin and is alive forevermore to God. So I don't consider myself to be in Adam. I consider myself to be in Christ and therefore I've died to sin and I'm alive to God. That's what Romans six is about, but that's a foray into the future. Next phrase, who for us, who for us became not only wisdom from God. Now, remember 2 Timothy 3.15? Last year, I did a couple of messages on this. Ever since you were an infant, Timothy, you knew the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise with respect to salvation. Wisdom with reference to salvation through the faithfulness that is in Christ Jesus. So he became wisdom for us, or wisdom from God for us. In 2 Timothy 3.15, this wisdom is for salvation. It is salvation that is through the faithfulness, dia pistios, of Jesus Christ, as we find in Romans 3.22 and Romans 3.30. So in the first phrase, from him, But from him, you are in Christ Jesus. The first clause emphasizes God's faithfulness. The second clause emphasizes Christ's faithfulness, who for us became not only wisdom from God, but also righteousness. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of salvation. But you see, in 1 Corinthians 1.24, if you look just a few verses before this, the power of God is Christ. The gospel is the power of God, For salvation to the Jew first, if you're going to go with the teacher's argument, and also to the Greek, the pagan, as the Jews would call him, the pagan. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who have faith. To all who have faith there means to all who are called into participation with Christ's faithfulness as it unfolds throughout Romans and 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians, and Ephesians, also known as the letter to Laodicea, all these passages have an unconditional grace revealed from God and the faithfulness of Christ. So who for us became not only wisdom from God, that's wisdom for salvation, but also righteousness. That's the key word in the whole book of Romans. It's called dikaiosune. And I'll just put it up here just to see. This is how I read the scripture from the Greek. Dikaio, D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E. Dikaiosune. 
And this has been wrongly translated as justice. It's been wrongly translated dikaiosune. It's been wrongly translated as righteousness. It is in Romans understood to be the saving act of God in Christ, which is right. It's the right thing for the God of all grace to do for his people and for the domain over which he rules, which is all of creation. I'm going to show you seven ways by which we come to that translation down the road. But right now, I I can give you that translation because I've already looked at the seven ways to get there. Dikaiosune. He has been made for us or became for us, not only wisdom, but also righteousness. That goes to Romans 117, the righteousness of God being Christ or the saving act of God in Christ. He became for us righteousness. He became for us the salvation that we needed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because therein the righteousness of God is revealed, is apocalyptically being revealed. Who is the righteousness of God other than Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is being revealed by the gospel as he who became for us wisdom, the way for salvation, and righteousness, the life and sanctification, which is the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, he said in John 14. Let's look at the next phrase. So after, but also righteousness, righteousness of God being Christ, or the saving act of God in Christ, which are the same, as we'll also be teaching down the road. Also, he has become for us sanctification. Sanctification. In John 17, 19, Jesus said, for their sakes, speaking to the Father, for their sakes, he's talking about his disciples, He's talking about those who will hear the message through his disciples, but he's also talking about the whole world, that the whole world may know. For their sakes, the whole world, I sanctify myself. For their sakes, in John 17, 19, I sanctify myself. Meaning, Christ is our sanctification for all of us. Christ is the sanctification for all of us. Christ is our holiness but also righteousness, sanctification. And this emphasizes in the same context in John 17, 17, the truth. Wisdom emphasizes the way, righteousness, the life, sanctification, the truth. And finally, redemption. And redemption. Redemption is another key word in Paul. It's apolutrosis which means deliverance or liberation through ransom paid in Romans three twenty four is where we find this. And that's where, again, that connects to where we are in Romans all sinned. That is when Adam sinned and all turned away and keep falling short of the glory of God. Keep falling short of being able to give God glory. Keep falling short of being the kind of human beings that we are in Christ Jesus, the kind of human being that Jesus Christ is. We keep falling short of the glory of God. Next phrase, being justified, which again is a a word that Paul plays with a little bit in Romans because the word for justification, dikaiao, is only used when Paul is usually embattled with a false teacher like in Romans or with a whole group of false teachers like in Galatians. That's where you see justification, justification, justification. 
which is better understood as an unconditional divine deliverance in Paul's way of speaking, because if righteousness, dikaiosune, is Jesus Christ being righteousness for us, according to the gospel, then dikaiao, what he does to us, is saves us unconditionally. And so Paul says, that same all who sinned in Adam are justified or unconditionally delivered by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, that is, rooted in the apolutrosis, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the first phrase in Romans or in first Corinthians one thirty, but from God as God's gracious act, you are in Christ. That's God's faithfulness who called us into participation with his son who for us became not only wisdom from God, which is wisdom for salvation, but also righteousness, which again in Romans 117, that's the righteousness of God being Christ himself. Sanctification. And again, Jesus said, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. And redemption, that's deliverance or liberation through ransom compared with Romans 3. 24. Then in 1 Corinthians 131, this is what jumped out and slapped me upside the head this morning to wake me up enough to be, to come here to be attentive, to be intelligent with the mind of Christ, to be reasonable, hopefully, and to be responsible to this gospel and even to be in love with all of you because it's love that motivates me to do this. Otherwise, why do it? So what does 131 say? All of this in order that the one who boasts, the boaster, literally, ho kekalmenos, the one who boasts, and all human beings boast about something. Every human being takes pride in somebody or in something above all other things. Paul took pride in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. In order that the one who boasts must boast, it's an imperative, in the Lord. That's Jeremiah 9.24. That's where Paul is exegeting from. His gospel fulfills the divine mandate, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. The word Lord is Yahweh in the Old Testament. Notice that. Yahweh, the God of Israel. The God of Israel is Yahweh. The Israel of God are the people who boast in Yahweh. Gentile or Jew doesn't matter. Male or female doesn't matter. Slave or free doesn't matter. Barbarian or Scythian or bond or free. See, the Greeks, the Greeks considered themselves to be refined. And outside the Greeks, there were these people called the barbarians, which they probably would have called people like, oh, Americans. We would probably fit more like in the Scythians, or the peoples that around the crescent of the Black Sea today, Scythians, barbarians. So to the Jews, the Greeks were pagans, but to the Greeks, the barbarians were animals. And so Paul said, I am a debtor both to the pagans and the barbarians in Romans 1, 13 to 14 to preach the gospel to them. You see, it was all settled in the, in the Jerusalem council. It was all settled between Paul and Peter in Galatians 1.18, and then later between Paul and John and Cephas and James. James was the 
head honcho of the church at that time. They all decided, and they shook hands on it, when shaking hands meant something. They shook hands on it, that the gospel to the Gentiles should be Paul's task, and the gospels to the circumcision or the Jews should be Peter's main task. The task of the Jerusalem church, represented by Peter, evangelize the Jews with this gospel, wherever they are. It's not a geographical thing. The gospel to the Gentiles, Paul, wherever they're found. And so Paul said in Romans 1, 13 and 14, I'm a debtor. I owe a hearing of the gospel to the pagans and the barbarians. But oftentimes he ended up getting in the way or preaching and magnifying his task to include Jews, which is why sometimes he got beat up in synagogues and whipped with 39 lashes, five times to be exact, which is why he aroused the anger of the Gentile mobs because his gospel could effectively turn you from idols to serve the living God like other gospels can't. And so... They went around and they tried to kill Paul in Ephesus. He said, I was almost torn to pieces by animals, beasts in Ephesus, barbarians. And so he was beaten with rods three times by the constabulary of certain Roman towns because he presented this gospel. So from here, Paul shows his own boasting report in 1 Corinthians 2.2. We know where this goes. When I was with you, I didn't come to you in strength and power and eloquence and all the eloquence of the Greek philosophers and the wandering pop psychologists called sophists, the pop philosophers. I didn't have any of their shtick. I was among you in weakness, in fear and trembling. And I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ. Let's say it this way. Who became for us righteousness who became for us wisdom for salvation, who became for us sanctification, who became for us redemption. I determined to communicate to you nothing except Jesus Christ and him, and here's the kicker, having been crucified, having been crucified, the cross being right at the center of the history into which you and I have been incorporated. He whose goings forth have been from eternity, in Micah 5.2, takes on human flesh in John 1.14. It's called incarnation. He takes on flesh to become one flesh with humankind as his bride. And incarnation is followed by a life of vicarious obedience by the one faithful Jew, Jesus Christ, the one whose life exemplified obedience on behalf of all of us to God. He was obedient to the extent of death, not just any death, the most horrible death available, crucifixion. He became obedient and didn't shun that obedience even to the extent of death by crucifixion. To what was he obedient? He was obedient to the Father's intent of love. The cross is not a satisfaction of divine judgment or justice. The cross is primarily an extraordinary act of divine benevolence for humankind. 
because the wages of sin would have been an absolute death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, through his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. The cross is going to take on an entirely different shape here. And the God behind the cross is going to take on an entirely different view to us as a God, not of retributive justice, who sends his son to protect the human race from him being really angry. But we'll see behind the cross the God of illimitable, benevolent kindness. The cross we will see as an act of extraordinary love. God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet hostile to him, Christ died. It's an act of love. God loved the world so much that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him, that is whoever is incorporated into him to share his participation with his fidelity will not only not perish, which is the result of remaining in the Adamic ontology, but have the life of the coming age right now, right here to be experienced and then to be experienced in its totality, in its glory, following bodily resurrection. God loved so much. God loved so much. He gave his only eternally begotten son so that whoever believes in him, that means, again, we have to back up, and I'm going to back up and do John in a different way that has never done before, the Gospel of John, and that's coming up too. As, and it will bring John and Revelation, which we studied for six years together, into a focus that we never saw going through John and Revelation about God's love. So when Paul gets to them, we look before into 1 Corinthians 1.9. Let's look after in 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul says him having been crucified, which again emphasizes the saving act of God in Christ, which includes his incarnation, his life of obedience to what? To the intention of God, to the intention of God's love to save the world, to the intention of God, the, the secret of his mystery, the mystery of his intent to summarize everything up in his son to make everything righteousness and sanctification and redemption in him, to make us the righteousness of God in him, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, who became sin for us. God's great intention of love was that to which Jesus Christ adhered and became obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. Jesus Christ in him having been crucified, and again, the cross is the dead center of our identification with his history. Having been crucified emphasizes the fact that since then he was resurrected to life. He was ascended to the right hand of the Father and seated in the heavenly places in enthronement. So instead of death reigning, instead of death increasing its reign through the law, Christ is reigning through grace is reigning through righteousness which Jesus Christ became for us in Romans 5.21. So the fool says, all that amounts to a license to sin. I've heard that thing since the beginning of my ministry at age 28 years of age down here in 1978. I heard that from religious types. I heard that from 
Christian types. I heard that from Baptist types, Pentecostal types. I've heard that from Foursquare types and Charismatic types. I've heard that from within my own so-called affiliations, the last two of them. I've heard the whole thing ever since preaching the finished work of Christ, and now it's getting fine-tuned into something far, far greater than we ever imagined. The fool says that's, that's saying, let's go out and sin that good may come. Paul blows that thing out of the, he not only blows it out of the water, he evaporates it first by showing how can that be true if our salvation includes an incorporation into Christ and a sharing of his history who died to sin and was made alive to God. If he died to sin and is made alive to God, I have to consider myself as dead to sin. So how can I that am dead to sin continue any longer therein? Fool, I say to the fool. You say, you can't talk that way. Then why did Paul talk that way to his beloved Galatians? Oh, foolish Galatians, you dumb Celts. Who's bewitched you? Who? What teacher? Well, he's famous and he's said he's under the tutelage of the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. Well, A, he's not. And B, he's not called of God. And C, he will bear a certain kind of judgment from God. And Paul got really feisty then. You see, we can get a little feisty in the pulpit if we paid our dues. If we haven't paid our dues, we ought to shut up. I paid my dues preaching this gospel on airwaves and everywhere else, on street corners, in funeral homes, in bar rooms, and in this place. And there's no sacred, there's no secular space in this world. It's all sacred wherever the gospel is being preached. Therefore, Paul could say, I wish those who preach this gospel of the little cut for the males and called circumcision would be cut off altogether. Galatians 5.11. They, they, you see, they preach this way so that they can avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. There's an offense there, you see, so they can avoid it. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, right where we know he's standing. Christ and him crucified. But this in turn recollects, and I don't mean recollects, but it recollects Paul's previous dissertation starting in 1 Corinthians 1.17 to 24, which is called the word of the cross. Paul says to the people who are perishing, and I'll define to you who they are, people who remain in Adamic ontology, people who remain in the flesh or the Adamic ontology, to them, the word, the message of the cross, the universalistic message of the cross of Christ, saving humankind and creation, to those who are perishing or insisting on remaining in the Adamic ontology, it's foolishness. It's nonsense. It's ridiculous, and so are the preachers of it. But to those of us who are being saved, that is, who are sharing and knowing it, Christ's incorporation with Christ, It's the power of God. It is the power and the wisdom of God. It is, as Christ himself is, he is the power. He is the wisdom. The Jews want a demonstration of power called a miracle. The Greeks want a demonstration of wisdom through eloquence, through the cool sophists, the populists, or through the very intelligent philosophers. Paul says, well, it's all wrapped up in Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God, meaning there's no greater miracle than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his inclusion of the human race in him when he rose. Show me a better miracle. 
Show me better wisdom. A wisdom by which God fully redeems all humanity and all creation in an act that he enacts in Christ who became for us, the human race, wisdom, righteousness, and not only wisdom, but righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Not done yet. So this recalls or recollects Paul's dissertation on the word of the cross, 1 Corinthians 170 to 24, which to those who are still in the Adamic ontology and so are perishing in that sense is nonsense, but which he says to both Jews and Greeks whom God called, that means called into existence as the new creation, they have a different perception of it. Once you're in Christ and know it, you have a different perception of the word of the cross. It's not a nonsensical thing. It's not foolish. It's not ridiculous. It's the power of God to salvation. It's the gospel. It reveals Jesus Christ. It reveals Yahweh. When you have lifted me up, then you will know that I am he. You'll know that I am Yahweh. When you have lifted me up, because then you will see who I am in love, in self-sacrificing love, in unlimited benevolence for you in John eight twenty eight. Then you'll know. But to both Jews and Gentiles whom God called into existence by Christ, that is, they're already in Christ and know it. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, that's 124. That's what leads up to 130. Now, this motif of boasting keeps showing up in Paul's epistles. Let me give you a few examples if you want to study it yourself. Romans 2.17, Romans 2.23, 3 5.2, 5.3, 5.11. 1 Corinthians 1.29, right here. 32, twice, or 31, rather, twice. 2 Corinthians 5.12, boasting. 2 Corinthians 10.8, 10.13, 10.15, 16.17, used twice, 12.9. Galatians 6, 13 to 14. Ephesians, also known as the letter to Laodicea, Colossians 4.16, 2.9. For by grace, God's act in Christ, you were saved and kept throughout time and eternity through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast about his works or about getting in or even about faith alone to get in. Just still kind of a boast. Some came from you. It's God's act in Christ that almost got you there. If it weren't for that faith alone by you, you never would have gotten in. See, so thank God for you and your faith. Now, thank God for Jesus Christ and his faithfulness. His obedience to the extent of death. Thank God for Jesus Christ's faithful death and resurrection in which I was included and you were included in that history. You say the poor unsaved. What poor unsaved? They just don't know this yet. That's all. They don't know this yet. So they, they come to know it when God is pleased to reveal it to them. And he's often pleased to reveal it to them during the preaching of the gospel. On a one-on-one, in a conversation, over a cell phone. So you could say, when did you get, when did you realize you were in Christ? Well, when I was talking to brother so-and-so, who called me on the cell phone. He called me on the cell phone. Never mind. Now, Galatians 6, then also in Philippians 3, 3. Wow! To name some. So we've already stressed this theme, and mostly in the main 
the midweek services in Romans 3.27. So where's boasting then? If everyone is benefited by the faithfulness of Jesus in verse 26, if everybody benefits from his faithful death or propitiation, which is not the satisfaction of divine wrath, but the doing away with sins and sin and the destruction of sin. And if that's all true, then where is boasting then when it comes to salvation? In Romans 3.27, I called Paul and said, hey, Paul, where's boasting? He answered. He said, well, it's excluded. It's gone. Shut out completely. Tell everybody that. Now, before you think I'm insane, I didn't literally call Paul, and I didn't literally speak to Paul, and he didn't appear to me. This is an analogy. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. I called Paul. Paul, where's boasting? He says, it's excluded radically. As far as it is in man to boast of his own merit, radically excluded. But then we found boasting in Romans chapter 5. Being justified, that is saved by the gift of life, as we've seen from Romans 5.18. Again, I've defined all these things already and I'm going to more in the future. Justification is simply the gift of life that removes us from slavery to death. Being justified, then, is saved by the gift of life, Christ's own life, through the faithfulness, that's the faithfulness of Christ, and having peace with God in Romans 5.1, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. There's a boast for us. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. True. But what is the hope of the glory of God? Let's turn to Colossians. Another epistle written by Paul. Did you write Colossians? Because some scholars say you didn't. Of course I wrote Colossians. He didn't talk like that. He's a much kinder, gentler man than many people portray him. You read scholars, well, we don't think Paul wrote Colossians because he used different language. In the- well, of course he used different language. He wasn't kicking the butt of a teacher in Rome who had a false gospel of justification by works. He wasn't kicking the butts of teachers, plural, in Galatia who said that you were justified by the works of the law. So, of course, in Colossians, he doesn't use the word justified he simply says you died and your life is hid with christ in god he doesn't say it to the laodiceans in the epistle we call ephesians he simply says by grace you were saved because when you were dead in sins god made you alive in christ jesus that's justification he doesn't use justification language in those places you foolish scholars because he didn't write it but because he was dealing with a different exigency, a different emergency there, you foolish scholars, you foolish wise men. So, Paul, they've been saying you haven't written Colossians. What do you say about that? I wrote Colossians. They say you didn't write Ephesians. What do you say about that? I wrote Laodiceans. Please call it Laodiceans because in Colossians, where I wrote Right after I said only Luke is with me and a few other things, he said, let the letter that has been written to you be read also in Laodicea, and you also read the one to Laodicea, which is Ephesians. Did you write Ephesians? Because you talk different there than you did in Romans. Of course I talk different there. I was dealing with a different thing. I found out about a pagan congregation. I told, I gave an account of what it was like to be in Christ now, and they weren't before. They were dead, now they're alive. They want to know how that happened. I'll tell them how it happened. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. He slam-dunked them into Christ, and that's why I'm giving a pristine account of what a pagan should know 
being in Christ. So I didn't use justification language there. Yes, I wrote Ephesians. Yes, I wrote Ephesians. Some people say you didn't write 2 Thessalonians. And he said, will you tell those scholars to shut up? I wrote 2 Thessalonians. I wrote 1 Thessalonians. I wrote Romans. I wrote Galatians. Okay, Paul, I'll, I'll talk to you later. I got to go preach now. So let's make it short. What does Colossians 1.27 say? Christ in you, the what? The hope of glory. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Well, what's the hope of the glory of God? Christ in you. In who? In you pagans in 126. That's the mystery of God, you see. The mystery isn't just Gentiles being in Christ along with Jews. That's the beginning of the unfolding of the mystery where God's going to summarize everything in himself, which is signaled by his inclusion of pagans and barbarians in Christ, as well as his inclusion of Jews in Christ. That's the first indication of a universal recapitulation, of a restoration of all things, of a Universal apolutrosis, a redemption of all. A apocatastasis, a restoration, pantone, of everything. An anakephaliosis of everything. All those A words coming together. So, let's turn to Philippians, because I said we'd get there. We're not done. Someone will say, you're never done. You're right. Pastor's work is never done until that last little exhale we call death. When you exhale out of this body and inhale face to face with Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3 again. Paul enters a section into this epistle that comes directly from a previous letter to the Philippians. They have it. We don't. Philippians was probably written in 51 or even, even 52 just before Paul wrote Romans in 52. He thought that repeating this section would be effective in warning the Philippians of certain teachers, a recurrent theme, who had ravaged other of his churches he'd planted and watered. So here's what Philippians 3.1 says. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice. Again, rejoice is the same as boast, because when we boast in the Lord, we're rejoicing in the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 5.16, it's a taking great pride. You can't take great pride in someone without rejoicing in them or rejoicing over them. So, again, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Kind of rhymes with boast in the Lord. Then he says this, to write the same things to you. He says, I'm going to write, I'm going to include a section in this epistle that I wrote to you before, to write the same things to you. He's talking about writing what he already wrote before in a PLP, previous letter to Philippi. We don't have it. They did. We got part of it. It's 3-2 to 4-3 of our Philippians. But notice what he says here. To write the same things to you, to me, is not a bother. The preacher should never be bothered about repetition. You have to do it. He says, but for you, it is a safety measure because it's easy to forget something. Like, say I read a book about how bad sugar is, and then I forget about it, and I'm eating a Snickers bar the next day and then decide to have a donut on top of the Snickers bar. What have I done? I've forgotten that for me, for me, just for me, too much sugar is too much. 
So what do I do? I go back to the book and read those sections again that say, for you, feeling groggy and sickly and hanging over the chair and falling asleep while you're studying has to do with too much sugar. Oh, yeah, I remember. So Paul's doing the same thing for their spiritual lives. It's for you. It's a safety measure. And here it is. This is a section. It begins the section that he had in a previous letter. Beware of the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Be on the lookout for the mutilators. That's the circumcision preachers in Acts 15.1. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Unless you believe and really meant it. You ever hear that one? So people, they either say, well, I don't know if I'm saved because I don't act saved and I'm just going crazy. Cause I, you know, all you did was believe. You, you just believe. Well, I did, but I don't know if did I believe enough. Was I sorry enough for my sins is one way, but did I believe enough? Was my belief real? Was my belief sincere? Was the, 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 and before long, you've got to be, you see the need for a Christian psychiatrist, which is, there is a need for them. Because if Christian psychiatrists use the gospel in their counsel, they would be able to see a lot of people free from horrible eschatological anxieties. So he says, watch out for the evil workers. Why evil? Because they say we're saved by good works. Evil workers. And their good works are evil. So be on the lookout for the mutilators. They say circumcision. I say mutilation. For we are the real that should be emphasized, even though it's in an ellipsis. He says, we are peritome, the circumcision, as opposed to katatome. We who don't require circumcision are the circumcision. You know what he's saying there? Boldly. We are the true Israel of God. And Christ Jesus is truly the God of Israel. This is not replacement theology. This doesn't mean that the pagans replace the Jews as the people of God. This means that Israel in its reality consists of Jews by genetics and Gentiles by genetics and barbarians by genetics and females and males by genetics, all in Christ Jesus. As Galatians 3.28 emphatically brings, and we know we have no idea. If you think you know what Galatians 3.28 means, please let me tell you that you don't yet, and neither do I. But that's coming, too, and that's going to be a shocker, a good one. For we are the real circumcision. To me, that means the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. We are the Israel of God. I'll tell you why. Who worship God in the Spirit. The very spirit that the false teacher's gospel sidelines, Paul emphasizes, ethics and worship are a result of activity in the spirit, by the Holy Spirit, not by a reconfiguration of the Adamic flesh or by a ritualizing of the Adamic flesh or by dunking or dipping or spraying or squirting Adamic flesh in a thing called baptism and by chanting over them by using the name of the Trinity or the name of Jesus, which is nothing more than a chant over the Adamic flesh as if that changes them. And it doesn't. What changes you is a baptism by the Holy Spirit into union with Christ 
so that you share the history of the downward trajectory of your Messiah and the upward trajectory of your Messiah so that you too have died to sin and are made alive to God. And that's what the spirit is doing for what the law couldn't do. God did by sending his son and God did by sending his spirit. So we worship God by the spirit and notice what it closes in saying. And who boast, cow, cow, oh my, in Christ Jesus. And who give a vote of no confidence to the flesh. We give a vote of no confidence to the flesh or Adamic ontology. We boast in Christ Jesus. What's Paul thinking about? Exegeting Jeremiah. He identified with the call of Jeremiah because he was called from the womb of his mother to preach the gospel to the nations. Even as Jeremiah said in one five, he was called from the womb of his mother to be a prophet to the nations. He identified with Isaiah 49 in which he was called to bring the word of salvation. And now is that day of salvation. He said in Psalm 49, eight identifying with Jeremiah, he says, Boast, we boast in the Lord. We boast in Christ Jesus. That means that Christ Jesus is equal to the Yahweh of Jeremiah 9.24, which means that the people of God are the Israel of God. That's the whole point of Paul's epistles. The church stands as the Israel of God Jesus Christ stands as the God of Israel. And it was always understood that because Israel is saved, all will be saved because Israel's representative is a Messiah who is a single inclusive representative of all mankind. That's why we got Romans 3.21. But now, without any involvement of the law, says 3.21, the saving act of God in Christ is being revealed. A deliverance that's attested by the law and the prophets. A saving act, he says, that's enacted entirely by God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that is being disclosed to those who are in a gifted participation with Messiah's fidelity. I'm reading Romans 3 now. And in Romans 3.23, it goes on to say, For you see, all sinned. When did all turn away? When Adam did, all sinned. And as a result, they keep lacking the glory of God. That same all being justified unconditionally as a gift by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or we could say the redemption that Christ Jesus became for us. Verse 25, listen to this translation because I'm going to iron it out in the weeks to come. Whom God displayed publicly, Jesus Christ displayed him publicly on a hill far away, Golgotha, Calvary, who was whom God displayed publicly as the mercy seat through the faithfulness of his blood or the faithfulness of his death, his faithful death, not through faith in his blood, but through the faithfulness of his blood, the fidelity, the faithfulness of his death. Then he says, this was to be a proof of his saving act through the passing over. He uses the Passover theme of sins committed previously. That is, from Adam to Christ, sins were passed over in the clemency of God. For the proof, again, of his righteous saving act in the present time, says 26, which is the age after Christ's death and resurrection in which the rest of humanity is picked up under this saving act. 
to the end that God is both just as well as the justifier or the deliverer of the one who is the beneficiary of the faithfulness of Jesus. 27, where is boasting then? That's where we are in Romans. Where is it? Shut out. Through what sort of Torah? What kind of teaching? A Torah of works? No, through the gospel, which is a Torah of the faithfulness of Messiah. That's how boasting is ruled out. And then Paul goes on and says, my fixed position is that a man, any man, is delivered from sin and death or justified through a faithfulness apart from the works of the law. On and on it goes. That's enough for today. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to not just lazily preach this gospel without engaging the texts. But I thank you, Father, that you have led us to actually get into a full-scale engagement with the Greek texts and the Hebrew texts and the word of God and a verse-by-verse opening of the epistles of Paul, a thorough looking in to these things to see if they are so. Acting as noble Bereans in Acts 17, we search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And we ask of other parts of Paul, do they correlate? Do they agree? Are they in concord? Do they have detente? with what Paul said elsewhere in Romans. And we found, yes, Father, they do. In 1 Corinthians, in Galatians, in Ephesians, in Colossians, in Philippians. Thank you.